Good morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me there. Welcome, welcome, a day before Labor Day, um, a day that we really try to do no labor. Whose idea was that? I don't quite entirely understand that. Someone work on that for us, okay? A Labor Day and we do no labor. Um, we're starting a new series that I'm excited about, a little bit of a, a different approach. It's a topical approach, what I refer to, and it doesn't matter if you are old or young, uh, rich or poor. I tell you what, every single one of us uh, wake up, and we are in what I refer to as a classroom of life. And we have to learn every single day how to live for God's glory. Um, if I could direct you, which I, I don't normally do, there's a little insert with an outline uh, that will look at uh, something to kind of keep you on track, hopefully. Uh, if, if you look at that, at the bottom there's a quote uh, from a, a gentleman who I have just had tremendous respect for over the years, uh, Dr. Erwin Lutzer, who's been the pastor. He just retired, actually resigned, I should say, uh, from Moody Memorial Church after 30-plus years. And um, I remember the very first time I, I was a pastor at age 27, uh, very young, and I went to my first pastor's conference ever. I was in Chicago at, at Moody Bible Institute, and, and one of the keynotes was Dr. Lutzer, and, and I saw him across the courtyard, and I thought I had read his books, and I taught some of his stuff, and I thought, there's like, there's one of my heroes, and I'm going to go meet him face-to-face, like for the first time. So I went up to him, and I was so nervous, I, I, I called him Dr. Wootzer. And, you know, and he just looked at me, and, and he said, Son, he goes, are you a pastor? I said, yes, sir, I am. And I remember he tapped on my chest. He did this. He's like, I- I'll be praying for you. <laughs> and so I'm really, you know, for 20 years... I think that Dr. Wootzer has been praying for me, and I am so thankful for that. Listen to what he says, a great little book that he wrote. It's called Why Good People Do Bad Things. Listen to this quote. Why do good people do bad things? They follow the desires of the heart, and they turn away from the commands of Scripture. They substitute perceptions for instructions and their passions for obedience. In a word, they take the path of least resistance, following the dictates of their lower nature. We examine this subject, what I call temptation and truth. We're going to realize that that the problem is, is that we live oftentimes taking the path of least resistance. We take the easy way out. This morning, before we dig into our text, I want to remind you that my goal, and from what I clearly see upon the authority of Scripture, is that we learn to take the most, the path of most resistance. We are not going to live like everyone else. We're going to live according to the truth of God's Word. That's our desire as we bow our heads and pray and ask for God's help and commit our time to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come before you 
We are humbled. We're grateful that it is because of the work of the cross that we have access to all of your greatness, your glory, to your holiness, to, to your perfection. We thank you, Lord, that you see us, that you know us, that you created us, you made us, you formed us and fashioned us in your own image. We thank you, Lord, that through Christ we can have a, a close, personal relationship with you. Father, we, we know that in this world, and as creatures of the flesh, we struggle and we stumble and we fall every day. God, I would ask that at this very moment, you would allow our hearts to be opened up, to be receptive, to hear and receive the, the truth, the seed of your word to produce fruit that brings glory to you and to you alone. Father, that is our prayer. We leave ourselves in your hands. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to deal this morning, as I said, with the subject every single one of us, every one of us will face, and that is the subject of temptation. But we will also deal something that we have to hold on to, the single most important thing in the midst of temptation, and that is the subject of truth. Understand and hear me on this. Whenever there is temptation, truth, the truth is going to be attacked. Whenever there is temptation, truth will be attacked. And there are devastating, horrific results of us, in a sense, biting the lie that calls us and draws us into sin. Let, let me give to you, I want to read, and this is kind of a, a tough way to kind of start a message. It's kind of a, a, a graphic, very kind of almost gross illustration, but it, it gives you a picture of the destruction of sin and the results of temptation when we cave, when we uh, give into it. Uh, the story is, the illustration is the way that in Eskimo, and is that the politically correct term? It's Inuit or Native American, forgive me, but you kind of know what I mean. The people that live in the snow and the ice and the igloos. The way an Eskimo kills a wolf. Um, so if you learn nothing else this morning, you could say, well, what'd you learn? I, I learned how Eskimos kill wolves, okay? So we always have that to fall back on. It offers fresh insight in the consuming and self-destructive nature of sin that every single one of us face. Listen to this. First of all, the Eskimo takes his knife, coats his knife blade with animal blood, and he allows it to freeze. Then he adds another layer of blood, and then another, and another, until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. Next, the hunter fixes the knife in the ground with the blade up. When a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, he licks it, tasting the fresh frozen blood. And he begins to lick it faster and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. I, I told you this is gross. Feverishly, now faster and faster, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. So great becomes the craving for blood that the wolf does not notice that the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue 
nor does he recognize the instant at which his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his very own warm blood. His appetite just craves more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. I know that's, I know that's kind of a tough image, but it, it talks about the destructiveness. The looks that I'm getting back are like, what kind of a weird guy? It talks about the destructiveness and how easy it is for us to kind of be drawn in or attempt to be tempted. Now, we can look at Scripture and we know that every single one of us, even the Lord Jesus Christ, while He's ministering here on earth, was tempted. He was what? We sang about this. He was a man like us. Matthew chapter 4 Luke chapter 4 both speak of this event. And what happens when Jesus Christ was tempted is exactly what we need to do. He went immediately to the truth of Scripture, and we have to go to the truth. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, follow along as I read. I'll begin in verse 12, read verses 12 and verse 13. Listen very carefully to this. Hold on to the truth that we have to understand in the midst of temptation. Therefore... 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to. You endure it. Now what Paul is writing to the church of Corinth about is the fact that none of us will ever wake up and now just consciously find ourselves sinning. Okay, It's not something that just happens without our thinking or without our choosing. Uh, we cannot blame our sin on another person. Unlike the world today, the truth of Scripture says that we are not victims Okay, that are forced to sin. It simply does not work like that. Rather, when we sin, we are always given a choice and we choose to sin. Now, now tragically, sinning comes very, very easy to us. We don't have to work on that. It comes natural to us because of our sin-bent nature. The difficult part is what? Learning to refrain or restrain ourselves from sinning. And so this morning, as we, we are reminded of this classroom called life, we've got to learn how we deal with it. What, what do we do when we're faced with temptation? If you were to look up the word, Webster simply defines uh, the word tempt as to draw into a wrong or a foolish course of action. To, to tempt is to lure someone or something into a wrong or foolish course of of action. Now let me ask, has that ever happened to you or am I the only guy that, that has been tempted or struggles with temptation before? Now generally speaking, if you use this idea, this definition, the word wrong and foolish is something that is not good for you. It's wrong for you or it's foolish for you. When you're drawn into something that's wrong or foolish, potentially it's almost always going to be addictive. It's going to become destructive or dangerous in some way. 
interestingly enough, if I'm watching a game on TV late at night, okay, and, and I have those hunger pangs for a snack, I have never been drawn to the refrigerator and say, if only I could have some, some cabbage leaves. Oh, that would be so great right now. It, it hasn't happened like that. Oh, wow, I'm so hungry. Seventh inning stretch. What I need is some celery and rice cakes. What is that? Who eats that? That that is never going to now now Ben and Jerry's Cherry Garcia, it is screaming out of the freezer, out of the fridge, out of the freezer for my name. It knows. Double fudge chocolate brownies that my wife has baked and said company's coming tomorrow. You're not to. Why is it that I'm drawn to stuff that is sweet and fattening and drawn to things that taste so good? Ever been there before? Sure you have. Tempt it. Now, now, what's interesting is that that's just one area. There, there are all kinds of areas that we can very easily be what? Have something dangled in front of us. Texting in a relationship with someone that perhaps you should not be in a relationship with. Tempted, drawn to have a conversation of a close, intimate, personal matter with someone of the opposite sex that is not your spouse. Okay, just a dangerous thing. You're, you're surfing the internet at night and there's that blue glow and man, you understand the temptation. There's a pop-up ad and you what? You are drawn, you want to click. What's, what's next? Every single one of us. It can be as something as, as somebody drives up with a new black shiny SUV. Well, why, why do they always have the nice car? Why does mine have rust on it? There's always something that can draw us or lure us. And we long and we, we lust after. Why can't I be as beautiful as that person or as skinny as that individual or as rich as that person? Or as smarts, whatever it is, there's this temptation that we have. We're faced every single day. How do we handle this? Where do we go? Take your Bibles, turn with me to the very first book of the Bible, in the book of Genesis. I want you to look at chapter 3, the very first time that we are introduced to the subject of temptation. It happens right out of the gate. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve have been created. And they were very clearly, they were instructed not to eat the fruit. Don't touch this tree. You can enjoy all of the beauty of the entire garden. And this one tree. I had great conversations as far as why exactly did that one tree exist? Well, why did God do this? It's almost as if what? God was preparing mankind. And you and I understand what? There are a lot of blessings. There are a lot of freedoms. There's a lot of graces in this world. And then the Lord says, see that? See that? You are not to go there. And you are not to touch that. God, in a sense, was preparing mankind. We will always live. We must live with some kind of restrictions around us. And what happens here, we, we understand. I saw a bumper sticker not that long ago. It said, Eve was framed. No, she wasn't. 
She and Adam both were at fault. Both were wrong. Both were to blame. And we understand what happens that what? There's this very subtle, very simple lie that the serpent kind of, what? Draws us in, tempts us with. Listen to the exact word. Listen to the exact account. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, we begin in verse 1. Listen to this. Notice how subtle. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Listen to this, verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when a woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruits and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The the lion, in a sense, is what the serpent, Satan, is telling Eve that what God's really holding out on you. He's really holding the best for himself. And so in a sense that that, that God doesn't have your best intentions in mind. And that's totally wrong. It's, it, it's a total lie. I know we really move from the sacred here, but you know what I think? Of? Whenever I read this account, the first thing that kind of pops in my mind, and forgive me, okay, it's, it's Miracle Max's wife, Valerie. Remember from The Princess Bride? And she walks out literally, liar, liar, liar! Stay back, witch. I'm not a witch. I'm your wife. And we could go on, but we won't. But it's that, it's that idea. As soon as Satan speaks liar, he's a liar. He's the father of lies. He's born in lies. All of it. It's just lies. As we deal with this subject of temptation, we know that truth is going to be attacked. We have to understand the severity of balancing what? Truth. Truth from lies. Satan has worked on tempting people to follow his lies by using the fleshly desires that God has given to us. Today, Satan seeks to destroy, and and I don't have to belabor, and I won't go into the lies that exist in our society today. Everywhere, the lies of evolutionism that reduce the, the, the sanctity of life. The lies of promiscuity, the lies of materialism and relativism and hedonism. It feels good. Go ahead and do it. The the result of that very clearly, Paul writes to the church in Rome in Romans chapter 1, one of the, the most discouraging, dark passages in all of Scripture. What does it say? It describes that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. People bought it. 
they, they worship creation more than the Creator. Is that a problem today? You better believe it. Or it says, you want that? He actually uses the term, he gave them over. You want that? You can go ahead and have that. They exchange the truth of God for a lie. Thus the importance, thus the absolute priority for us to know, to weigh, and to balance truth from lies. I love how it says, the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself in John chapter 8. And everyone knows this. No one argues with this. The world will champion this. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Go to the University of Texas, walk into their main campus. There's a big clock tower. Etched in the granite are the words, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Go to Howard University, walk into the library, etched on the arches. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Go to Langley, Virginia, to the Central Intelligence Agency, the head of the CIA. And in their very lobby as you walk in, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. No one questions that. No one argues. John chapter 8, verse 32. The interesting part is that you never see verse 31. It's not there. And it's a statement. You can't take one statement. Verse 31, John 8, 31, the verse before it says what? If you abide in my word, you are my disciples, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Why is it that people have have omitted this? If you abide in this. That's what we do here. That's why we gather every Sunday to get into the Word, to know the truth, to understand the truth. Truth is what? That Satan uses the very simple, even God-given desires and he twists them and distorts them so that our fleshly desires are taken outside the parameters that God gave to us. Food is a good thing. We have a desire. We get hungry to eat. That's a good thing. God gave us that desire. But if that's all you do, you've got a serious problem in your life. If you live to eat, that refers to a sin of gluttony, and we chuckle about it today, but there's a problem that exists. It's, it's, if you take that God-given desire and go outside the boundaries, what? There's sickness and disease and, and, and all of this. Take our God-given desire to socialize, to be in relationships, connect with one another. That's a good thing. That's a great thing. We need that. But if that's all you ever did and you didn't work, if all you did was just sit around and talk and text and, and, and you socialize all day long, what happens? You get fired. You can't just do that. It's a God-given desire. Take it outside the parameters and there's trouble. Take the desire that God has given to us for sexual intimacy and relationship. A beautiful gift within the context of marriage alone, between a man and a woman, the only way. What happens is what? You go outside that. Okay? The world says, whatever you want, two consenting adults. No, no, no. You go outside that desire that God has given to us, you move outside those parameters, and there's destruction all over the place. How do we face this? What do we do? Let me give you a couple things in closing very quickly. Number one, remember this. God allows temptation. Okay, don't think that, in a sense, being tempted is wrong in and of itself. Turn with me to the book of James. James in chapter 1. 
Although God allows temptation, God will never entice a person to behave in such a way or to act in such a way that is contrary to his commandments or to his own character. We are to reflect his glory. James chapter 1, God's word is very clear on this. Look at verse 13. Let, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So we have this clear image, this clear idea. It says, don't ever think that you are beyond temptation or you're beyond sin. Don't come to a place that says, you know what, I'm strong enough. I got this covered. I've logged enough years in righteousness, and so I'm good to go. No, that's a dangerous place to be. Insurance reports have have confirmed the fact that that the majority of car accidents occur within one mile of your home. Isn't that interesting? What happens? Well, we're almost there. We got this. I have been in one major accident my entire life. I was 17 years old, and it happened at the bottom of our driveway. Think of that. I've been driving a full year now. Just move out of my way. I know what's going on. That is the ultimate path to destruction. So, so we have to be very careful in understanding that God allows us. This is always going to be here. But we hold on to the promise that we read earlier, that God is faithful. Secondly, God wants us to be resolved to obey Him in the middle of temptation. God desires, God wants us to be resolved to obey Him in the middle of temptation. One of the biggest reasons that we continue to struggle is that we have not come to a place where we are completely resolved or have settled the issue of obedience to God in our lives. Many people have not come to a place mentally where the battle begins here in our minds, where before we're in the midst of temptation, before that time, back here, we say, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going there. I will put whatever parameters or boundaries or accountability. I am not going to fall for that. What's interesting is that if you look at God's Word, those who who successfully resisted temptation, okay, the decisions were always made beforehand. Remember Daniel, the, 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 the young Hebrew guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were brought... Okay, and they were offered in a sense, why don't you live like everyone else? You eat the king's meat, drink his wine. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. But Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, I love the wording of the old King James Version. It says that Daniel purposed in his heart that he was not going to defile God. The New American Standard words it like this in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, that, that Daniel made up his mind. Now what's interesting is that he made up his mind before this. That's what we've got to do. We've got to go out of this room. We go out of this building with an understanding that says, no, I'm not going to fall for it. It's the idea of what? 
You ever go fishing before? Uh, yeah, some of you have. The, the idea, and I don't want to get all earthy here on you, but what's the idea behind fishing? But basically, you're going to lie to a fish. It's pretty simple. You got a razor sharp hook, okay, and you wrap a big fat juicy worm, which is supposed to be enticing, okay, and you dangle that in front. And then people get really, really excited that you're smarter than a fish. Wow. Congratulations, yawn B. What happens? You lie and he bites that. He thinks he's got something. And it's something that's going to lead to, ultimately, the frying pan, to his demise. What we have to do is we have to, to proactively think about the fact that Satan is dangling things in front of you. I want you to be mindful of the fact he cannot read your mind, okay? He's not all-knowing like God is. So what does Satan do? We talked a couple weeks ago, he's like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He watches you. He watches what you bite on. And he listens to you. And he is very convincing why he knows that he is damned to hell and he wants to bring destruction. He is the father of lies. I love as well how Joseph, when he was tempted, remember Potiphar's wife? Perhaps this this beautiful woman enticing, luring him as a young man? What is Daniel's, excuse me, what is Joseph's response in Genesis chapter 39? How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He knows it's a sin against his boss, against Potiphar, but even greater than that, how can I even do this? Do you realize that you're choosing to bite the hook, causing your own destruction and demise? Okay, it's a sin first and foremost against the holy God. We are to reflect His image, His glory. Thirdly, God wants us to identify our areas of greatest temptation. God wants us to identify our areas of greatest temptation. Have you ever asked the question, what is the strongest area of temptation that I face regularly? What 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 is the particular temptation that consistently or even constantly causes you to cave in? Ask the question, when am I the most vulnerable? Why am I vulnerable? This is where I believe we need to bring other people close. I love the the little tags that the ladies are walking around today. Um, uh, Ask me about faith. Ask me about faith, friends. Okay? That's a great idea. Faith, friends. Women coming together alongside of other women to hold them accountable, to pray with them, to encourage them, to read Scripture. We need that men as well. How come I don't see any men asking about faith friends or start that, man friends? You've got to be careful on the packaging of that one. Yeah, the idea, the idea is what? Identify the problem areas. Be honest and open. Recognize that they do exist. Think about the downfall of great men. Moses, Saul, David. Every single one of them came 
at points of what? Failure, even at spiritual highs. They succumbed to temptation and they felt no one was more than Solomon. He simply what describes in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I held nothing back. Whatever I saw, I went after. And so he, he identifies in a, in a sense. He had so much going for him. And he blew it in so many ways. We have to be that open and that honest. Let's read one commentator about Solomon, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It says this, Solomon overemphasized human gratification at the expense of God's glory. How many times do we do that? That we, that we are so concerned about gratifying our own self that we are missing out literally what it means to reflect the image of God, to live to His glory. We cannot do that. Fourthly and finally, God wants us to have victory in temptation. Do not just settle for identifying the problem. Yes, I have a problem in this area. That's not going to cut it. It'd be the same as you um, waking up in the middle of the night, okay, and you smell smoke, and then you look and there's flames, and so you call 911. And a fire truck comes and he's got lights on and siren on and a fireman come out and they're all in their gear and they say, you are correct, that is a fire. Now we're heading back to, to shine up our truck. What that, like, who would do that? It's the same as a doctor saying, yeah, the x-ray looks pretty bad, it's broken in three places. I'll see ya. No, no, we can't just identify. We have to do something about it. Now, God has given to us very clear instruction. First and foremost, we are open to the ministry of the Holy Spirit leading our lives. God, steer us towards you, away from sin, where we're listening every day for the Spirit to lead us, to guide us. We're to be in His words. We're to abide in the Word. We're to have others that we are, what, honest with. We talked last week about taking the mask off and being real, pouring into one another's lives. We're to be people that are on our knees in prayer, men, husbands, and fathers leading your home in prayer, knowing the promise that what God is faithful. I, I, I love the reminder that was given to us uh, in, in our in our Q&A from Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. And so that's, that's where it's going to happen. We draw near to the throne of grace, which means we turn and we, we what? My, my dad gave the greatest instruction from God's Word on how to deal with sin and how to deal with temptation. The Word is used repeatedly. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18, it says, Flee sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it says what? Flee from idolatry. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 22, it says what? Young men, flee 
from youthful lust. Now, there's one way that we translate the word flee. It's run. You run as fast as you can away from that and toward what? Towards the throne of grace, holding on to the promise. God is faithful. You are no match. I am no match for Satan in all of his strength and devices. But Satan is no match for our Heavenly Father. And so we hold tight to the truth of the Gospel. And we live victorious in the truth and move away from temptation. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. Give us now the means and the ability for Your Spirit to submit to it and to obey it for Your glory. In Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.